Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much that you speak to us uh, ever so clearly in your word, uh, that you reveal to us all that we need for salvation uh, and for life uh, with you uh, as our King. And we thank you that uh, Jesus uh, spoke and taught uh, and that he lived and died and rose again. Uh, We thank you that uh, we have his words uh, in these stories that we have uh, come to know for many of us so familiarly. Uh, these stories that we've grown up with. But we do pray that the familiarity that we have with these stories would not dull their impact on us. We pray for your spirit to be mightily at work through your word uh, to help us to hear the message and the challenge and encouragement you have for us this morning. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now if I were to ask you to tell me uh, what the scariest passage uh, in the Bible is for you, uh, what would you choose? Right? What is the scariest passage in the Bible for you? Is it some passage maybe in Revelation about the lake of fire or, or some kind of judgment passage? The one that I always go to that comes to mind for me is a passage from Matthew 7. Right? At the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he said this to the ones who were listening. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I, this is Jesus, will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, I'm not sure about you, but uh, this passage scares me, right? Because what it's saying is that people who claim to be Christians, who call on Jesus and as Lord, Lord, as many of us do, maybe all of us in this room would say that Jesus is our Lord, what it's saying is that on Judgment Day, there may be some of us sitting here that Jesus will say, get away from me, I do not know you. I'm not sure about you, but that sends chills down my spine even as I think about that reality, that possibility. And hopefully it scares you as well, right? And it's clear that the Bible teaches us, Jesus teaches us, that it's not enough just to say you believe. It's not enough just to say, I call on Jesus as Lord. And I hear in James 2, as Marilyn read out to us before, even the demons believe, right? They know who Jesus is. They know he's the Son of God. And they shudder. They're scared, but they don't actually have a saving faith, do they? Now, how do we know that our professional faith in the Lord Jesus really is true faith? How do we know that we are the good soil, right? We heard last week the parable of the four soils. How do we know we're the good soil that produces fruit? And we're not the soil that rejects Jesus, that that, that has no roots, and that is choked out, that dies, that perishes. How do we know all those things? And you might be asking yourself, what's this got to do with the parable of the good Samaritan, right? Isn't this parable just about showing unusual kindness to people. You know, the way we normally think of the Good Samaritan is, you know, you be a Good Samaritan, which means you do acts of kindness, be nice to someone, right? Now, what's that going to do with all this salvation stuff? Well, if you look at the story in this passage, yes, it is about love and unusual kindness that this one man shows, but look carefully at the context of how it all begins. The, The question that is being answered by this story is, how, uh, what must I do to inherit eternal life, right? The, the question that begins this whole story is, what shall I do 
to inherit eternal life. The parable of the Good Samaritan is much more than just about being kind and nice. It's about true faith that inherits eternal life. And the answer that it gives us is that true faith always, right, true faith always expresses itself in love for neighbor, and our neighbor is without distinction and without limit. You cannot put a definition, a, a limitation to who our neighbor is. And the one who has true faith always expresses neighborly love without distinction and without limit. And that's what we'll see. Now, with every parable that we read when Jesus tells it, it's always in a context. Very important. If you read these parables on its own, and often children's Bibles are like that, you can make it say almost anything. But the context will tell you what Jesus means. And this story begins with a lawyer coming up uh, to Jesus, right? Now, it's really cold. I mean, I'm a bit wet from the rain, but is it cold? Is anyone else freezing? Freezing? Can we, like, turn down this aircon a little bit? It's like uh, turning to an icicle. Cold there? Cold? Okay, can we uh, fix that up? It's so cold, I'm, like, shivering. Should we, like, give each other a cuddle? No, no, maybe not. Maybe. If it's your husband or wife, yeah, go for it, or your son and daughter, but otherwise... Thanks, Chris. Good. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, where, where are we? Uh, I've got no idea where I'm at. Okay. So, the story begins with a lawyer coming to Jesus. And we're not talking a lawyer in the court of law, you know, like a lawyer like Steve was. Uh, we're talking about a Jewish lawyer who is an expert in the law, right? The one who teaches the law and knows it really well. Uh, expert Jewish lawyer. Right? And he comes to Jesus, and he raises the question, uh, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? But we're told very clearly that this lawyer is trying to test Jesus, right? Now, we're not sure exactly what this test is. Was he just asking the question to see whether this lowly, uneducated carpenter, whether he can answer correctly? Or was he trying to trick and trip Jesus up to say something blasphemous against God? Now, the passage doesn't really tell us, all we know is the question that he asks, and it's a good question. It's a common question that Jewish people would ask, right? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, what, what will we answer to that question? If uh, the lawyer came in now and asked us this question, or asked you a question during lunch, how would you answer this Jewish lawyer to this question? Well, I think for many of us, because we're good gospel men and women, we'd answer, you don't have to do anything, right? You just have to believe in Jesus, who does everything for us. Right, we might know and be familiar with, you know, religion says do, Jesus says done. Right? Have you heard that before? Right? So as good gospel people, we don't earn our own salvation because Jesus does it all for us. Now, uh, that isn't Jesus' answer, right? He isn't a good gospel man, it seems. He doesn't say, you know, you don't have to do anything. In fact, what he says is a question back to the lawyer. What does the Old Testament, what does the law say to you? And then this lawyer answers, right? He says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus agrees with this lawyer, right? He's absolutely right. And he says, Go, do this, and you will live. Now, what do you think? Is Jesus teaching salvation by works here? 
Is he saying that being saved is earned by our love for God and our love for others? Now, that is absolutely not what Jesus is saying here. Because the lawyer's question isn't a how am I saved kind of question that we modern people ask, right? Uh, it's, it isn't a what must I do to become a person of God, right? What must I do to, to belong to God, to earn my way into God's relationship? It isn't that kind of a question because the lawyer is a Jew. This is a question of an insider, a question of a believer, right? Someone on the inside asking, what must I do in a way to please God and to live a life to show that I have true faith, right? That, that will ensure that I will inherit the eternal life and blessings and promises of God. It's a question of a believer, right? In a way, in our modern way of asking, it would be, what kind of life does a true believer live? And how do we know this? It's because the, 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 the lawyer's answer is from the Old Testament, right? It is uh, two verses from the Old Testament that are central to the covenant law of God. Right, you know the covenant? The covenant is the relationship that God established with his people. And the covenant rules, the laws, are for how God's people, the insiders, are to live to show that they truly are God's people, right? So it's not about entry. It's about what does it mean to be a true believer? And this uh, answer the lawyer gave is from two passages in the Old Testament. The first one is from the most famous and familiar passage uh, that a Jew would know because they recited it every day, twice, morning and evening. First from Deuteronomy 6.5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Right, pretty much exactly what the lawyer says. And the second part of his answer is from Leviticus 19.18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The two commandments, love for God and love for neighbor, became the quintessential summary of the entire law, the covenant code, being relationship with God. The lawyer knew it, Jesus knows it, and every good Jew knows it. Right? Those who call themselves the covenant people of God knew that the way that we're faithful to God would be to love God and to love others. And so the question, who inherits the blessing of eternal life? It is those with true faith, expressed in love for God and love for others. This was the Old Testament, the Old Covenant teaching. This was Jesus' own teaching. And this is the New Testament's teaching, right? And the message hasn't changed. Now, so far in the story then, no dramas, right? Besides the fact that the lawyer was trying to test Jesus, everything seems fine at the moment. The lawyer asks Jesus a question. Jesus asks the lawyer a question. The lawyer answers Jesus, and Jesus says, correct, absolutely right. But then Jesus knows, and we know that the right knowledge isn't enough, which is why Jesus ends with saying, do this and you will live. Because knowledge isn't enough, you have to actually live it out, right? Do this and you will live. Now, it's at this point of the story that the tension enters. This is the juicy bit, right? The bit we're waiting for to see what's the big deal. And this is where we see it. Verse 29. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? You see, the lawyer had no problems with the teaching, love God and love your neighbor. But he had a problem with the application of it. No problem with the teaching, just a problem with the application. And we know it's not an innocent question, right? Because he was seeking to justify himself. Make an excuse for himself about something. 
And if you know a bit about the Jews and how they interpreted this law of loving your neighbor, you will see what he was trying to justify himself in. Because the, the traditional Jewish approach to loving your neighbor is to define very carefully who your neighbor is, right? They will ask the question, who exactly is my neighbor? Right? How broad exactly is this command? Now, how do I spot who is my neighbor to know who I should love? And then they would answer that question by saying, well, obviously it would be the fellow Jews, right? The brothers and sisters in the covenant, yep, they are my neighbor, I love them. Maybe it will be the pagans, the, the, the Gentiles who come in and become a people of God, right? In the Old Testament, people will come in and want to be part of God's people. I'll, yeah, I'll love them. It will be those who are clean. But if you were unclean, if you were a pagan, a heathen, a, Samari- a Samaritan, as we'll come to hear later on, then right, you're not within my, my group. And I don't have to love you because you're not my neighbor. You see, this lawyer wanted to justify his puny definition of what constitutes a neighbor. Right? And we're all very good at that, aren't we? Making justifications for minimum obedience, right? To be content uh, with obeying the minimum of what the law requires. Uh, we're all born with that skill to justify ourselves from kids all the way to adults. Now, Faith, uh, sometimes when I'm out at the shops or meeting people, and she wants me to buy some stuff, right, from Woolworths or Coles. And she'll text me a shopping list. And on the shopping list, it will say things like chicken thigh, right? Tomato, banana. You know where I'm going with this? Anyway, I read the list and I go, okay. So I go and buy one chicken thigh, (laughs) one tomato, and then one banana. Because, well, God gave us plurals, right? In English language. (laughs) And it's singular there, right? I come home with my one chicken thigh, my one banana, and my, and my one tomato, and I'm very proud of myself. And then Faith will be like, the black face all comes out, and she's like, and I'm like, <laughs> and I justify myself. I say, look, God gave us the plurals in the English language. If you've given me a number, or if you at least put an S there, I would've got two, right? <laughs> so, I, you know, I justify myself, and she doesn't buy it, and I'm a male, you know, I take things literally, so uh, once in a while, she still does it. I don't know why, right? She never learns a lesson, and I purposely just buy one. <laughs> just kidding. Good thing she's not here, okay? Don't tell her I said that. Anyway, same thing, right, with kids. And I kind of tell my kids before we go out anywhere or before they can watch TV, I say, I want you to clear up all the rubbish that's on the floor. And there's always rubbish on the floor, right? There's paper scraps, there's toys, there's erasers. And then I'll say, I'll give you 10 minutes, and I'm going to check. So I 10 minutes later, I come back and check. And I'm like, what? There's still all this rubbish around. How can you say you clean up? And they say, we cleaned up. There is no rubbish on the floor. And what is this? They say, that's not rubbish. I'm going to use that piece of paper again. <laughs> I'm going to play with that toy again. <sighs> You're not Cantonese, right? Kick sailay, right? You know that? Like, it's just... Justification just flows out of every person that can speak. Because at our hearts, we're all JMOs, aren't we? Not junior medical officers, but justifiers of minimal obedience. That's what we are. Admit it, right? We can do the minimum. That's what we'll do for a lot of things. And the lawyer was just like that. Justifying himself in the same way to excuse his minimal application, his minimum obedience to God's covenant laws. And it is 
in this context that Jesus tells this famous parable about the Good Samaritan. And it is to destroy this minimalist approach to love. A love which we are to have if we have true faith. So we're talking about life and death here. We're talking about eternal life. Applied by our love for neighbor, and we're not asking who is our neighbor. And so this uh, story is told. Now this story is super familiar, right? Who has never heard this story before coming today? Just put your little finger up, just so I know. Who has heard it more than 10 times in your life? Okay, so there's quite a few of you. So, all right, super famous, super familiar story. And even if you haven't heard the story, you know what a good Samaritan is. And the impact is just lost on us. Because it's so familiar, and also partly because we don't know the cultural context. Now, the Jews hated the Samaritans. That is basically the context for why this story is so powerful for the original hearers of the story. And it should be for us as well. Now, I want to give you a one-minute brief history lesson, okay? It won't take long. Uh, and if you want more information, come speak to me. But basically, this is a map, right? Old Testament, this was Israel, right? The blue and the yellow combined was the 12 tribes of Israel that descended from Jacob, Israel, and the 12 sons. But then civil war broke out not long after the, it became a kingdom, and in the south became the kingdom of Judah, uh, with Jerusalem as its capital, and these became known as kind of the Jews. And then this is the north, the kingdom of Israel, 10 tribes with the capital Samaria, and they basically had civil war. So that was the beginning of it. Not long after that, because the, the temple was in Jerusalem and the Israelites would not step into Judah, they put their own temple in Shechem. So they had religious wars. My temple is better than yours. Nah, 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 right? That kind of thing. So not long after that, okay, quite long after that, Israel was exiled by the Assyrians, right? The Assyrian Empire came in in the 8th century BC and then they took Israel, 10 tribes, the north, and took them to Assyria, intermarried them, then whacked them back into Israel, right? A very simplified uh, history. And the Jews hated them even more because now they were impure. Right? For the Jews, it's very important to just be Jew and be God's people. So now the Assyrians made them intermarry. So now the Samaritans, right, named after the, their capital city, Samaria, became impure. And so the Jews had this long-standing hatred uh, for the Samaritans. So much so that if a Jew killed a Samaritan, sometimes they wouldn't be liable for murder. So much so that if a Samaritan, there's a law, where if a Samaritan walked above you, like on a bridge, right, or on the second story of the house, or if their shadow even touches you, you became unclean. And if you're unclean, you know, you've got to wash yourself because they're so dirty, they're so unclean spiritually. So, you know, you see a person coming, evening sun, you're, you're enjoying the view, and Samaritan's starting to walk past, and their shadow is long. You better see them, right? <laughs> Otherwise, you've got to wash yourself, go to the temple, make sacrifices. They really hated Samaritans. And then Jesus, to this Jewish lawyer, uses a Samaritan as the hero. Now, let's look into this story. There's a history lesson's over, but that's the, the view of the Samaritan that the Jews had in mind, this lawyer had in mind. And then he tells the story of a man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, right? Now, uh, showing you the map again. Samaria, after they got wiped out, became kind of, grew here, and then Judah spread out a little bit more, and Jericho was very much part of Judah, okay, at the time that Jesus told the story. So we're in Jewish land, right? Jewish home ground, and there's this man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he's robbed, and he's beaten, and he's literally half dead, okay? And then... Jesus introduces the first guy into the story. He's a priest. And this priest is a Jewish priest who is a high-ranking um, servant 
uh, in the temple of God. He is like the Jewish leader kind, right? Uh, and he sees this man on the road and he goes as far as possible to the other side of the path and avoids him and carries on. The second person that comes along is a Levite, another servant in the temple of God, slightly less ranking than the priest, but still an important person in the Jewish uh, community. Same thing as the first guy, the priest, he sees the injured man, goes as far as he can on the other side of the path and carries on. And finally, we get to the third person that walks past, a Samaritan, with all that background, right? Now, let's read this one carefully from verse 33. Okay, follow with me from verse 33. <clears throat> but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Now let's stop for a moment and see what this Samaritan man does. It all begins with the fact that he had compassion, right? He saw the man, and he had compassion. He cared. Cared enough to lead him to do something, to give practical help, right? He did something practical. He had compassion, and then he did something practical. In fact, he did a lot practical, didn't he? He went to the man, bound up his wounds, poured oil and wine to salve the, the wounds, uh, brought him to an inn, uh, paid for him to stay there for two days to look after him. And the third thing we see here is that he acted sacrificially. Right? This guy went the extra mile, right? Seriously went the extra mile. You know the bandage that he used? Do you think that he had a first aid kit in the bum bag of his donkey? Right, a nice crepe bandage all wrapped up? No, right? He would probably have taken his scarf off or something from his, from his clothing to wrap this man's wounds. His own oil, his own wine. Uh, he gave out his own time to tend to a complete stranger. Now remember, the Samaritan is in Judah. So he's kind of already a foreigner and he's doing this. Probably the man's a Jew, we're not told, right? But not only that, he sends this man to an inn and then he uses two denarii. Now, a denarii is an average person's wage for one day, right? So the average Australian wage is $80,000. Are you Singaporeans and Malaysians jealous? Anyway, $80,000, okay, in Australia. So $80,000 a year, uh, we have 261 working days, I think I calculated. So what's $80,000 divided by 261? Come on, all you match geniuses. Okay, I got the answer here. It is $306.51 for one denarii in today's standards. Which means this Samaritan spent $613.02 on a complete stranger to help him. And not only that, he told the innkeeper, if you incur any more costs in looking after him, I will pay. So minimally $613.02 to a complete stranger. That's, that's compassion. Showing itself in practical help with great sacrifice. And this alone is a sermon worth preaching, right? A lesson on practical, sacrificial love. But that's not even the main point of this story. We'll apply that later on, but it's trying to feed us to the main point of the story. Because as great as an example of practical love that this Samaritan shows, the parable is told by Jesus to the Jewish lawyer to explain who our neighbor is that we ought to love. And Jesus puts forward this disgusting pagan Samaritan man as the hero of this story. It is not the priest. It is not the Levite. It is not these Jewish leaders. It's the Samaritan. 
Now, in the Jewish way of telling stories, you would expect it to be a bit different. You expect him to, you expect Jesus to kind of maybe speak ill of the Jewish leaders, right? Because they usually could be corrupt. So he would take the priest, yeah, he's no good. The Levite, he's no good. And you expect the hero to be the ordinary Jew. It's the ordinary person who's loving. But Jesus says, no, I'm going to turn this upside down and actually tell you that in this story, it's the Samaritan who is the one who shows love. It's to completely turn this lawyer's man's mind upside down as to who is our neighbor. There is no distinction and limitations when it comes to who we should love and care for. But if you pay even closer attention to the story, you will see that Jesus actually turns the whole question upside down. You notice that? Well, look at verse 36. Jesus' final question, right? Which of these three, as in the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? But what was the original question from the neighbor, uh, from the lawyer? The original question from the lawyer is, who is my neighbor? Jesus' question is, who proved to be the neighbor? Now, let me test your English here. Do you know the difference between the subject and the object? Long case really, right? Okay, the original question, who is my neighbor, is who is the object of my love? Jesus' question, who proves to be the neighbor, is to say, who is the subject? Who is the lover? He's saying that that, that question, who is my neighbor, shouldn't even be asked. Everybody is your neighbor. The question is, will you be loving? Will you be a neighbor to other people? You see that? Jesus like, flips the question upside down. It's a stupid question to ask, who is my neighbor? Everybody is your neighbor. The question really is, will you be a loving neighbor to everyone? That is what Jesus does here. Now, at the beginning of the, of the story, the lawyer came to Jesus and asked, what must I as a child of God do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus' answer at the end, in that last verse there is, go and be merciful. Be a neighbor, be a lover, without distinction and without limitation. So, let's draw out some big implications from this passage. Now, the Bible is crystal clear. Okay, let me put it clearly. It was saved by uh, grace alone, right? God's grace alone. In Christ alone, our only Savior, through faith alone, by receiving the gift of Jesus that God gives us, right? Very clear. But the Bible is also crystal clear that true faith always expresses itself. True faith always shows itself and on the top of the list of proofs, of evidences that we're truly believers is love. Love. Love for God and love for others. Turn with me to 1 John. Okay, well, we, we've heard James 2, and that says it very clearly, right? James 2, go back and read it and study it for yourself. But turn with me now to 1 John. Right? Flip, flip, flip. The preacher loves to hear flipping pages. So if you have a phone, tap a bit louder so I can hear you. Tuck, tuck, tuck. Turn on the sound. It's okay. So if the phone rings, I know you're not listening. Okay, 1 John, starting from verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 10. I'm going to read a few passages. I want you to listen carefully okay, to the place of love in a true believer's life. 1 John 3, verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Verse 14. 
we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Verse 16, by this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And finally, turn to chapter 4, verse 8, which says this, Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And we could go to 1 Corinthians 13, we can go back to James 2, and go to many other passages in the Old and New Testament, which continues to teach this message that you cannot say you love God if you do not love others. You cannot say you love God. You cannot say that you're a true believer if you do not love others. Why? Because it tells us that God is not someone we can see and we can touch. He's real, but it's hard to physically, in real ways, express our love to God. And so God has set it up that we show love for people that we can see, that we can touch, to show that we truly love the God that we can't see and that we can't touch. Now, this teaching on love as the prime proof and evidence of true faith, is just so clearly taught in Scripture that I almost feel like I just read the verses and we all just get it and we just get on with it and do it. But the reality is that we don't do it. It is not the most well-known thing about Christians that we have this radical love for each other, for the people around us, or even for our enemies. Right? We're not known for that kind of radical love. <clears throat> that God shows us, that God calls us to. I see this in myself, I see this in my family, I see this in the church. Now one of the worst things about preaching on love is that you get up in the morning <clears throat> and then you yell at your kids for like an hour before you come to church to preach. Which is exactly what I did this morning. Even though I've been thinking about this topic for pretty much the last three weeks, uh, somehow the devil made me do it. No, I did it myself that I spent a lot this morning being cranky at my youngest daughter, Zoe. I hate Lego. It's everywhere, all the time. Anyway, sorry, a small little rant there. But I, it was really hard trying to preach, especially the first service. And it was a good thing that um, along the way, I was walking in, and then I saw Gabe, uh, Gabriel, our brother Gabriel, and he said to me uh, when I told him uh, that I was struggling to preach this, having lost my patience and not been loving at home, he said, brother, uh, we are all aspirational. You know what aspirational means? Aspire means to, to hope for something better, to aim for something better. And that was very comforting, right? As a preacher, to know that godliness is aspirational means that I don't have to be perfect before I can encourage us, not just you, but us, to be able to live out God's word. It's because we fail, naturally, isn't it? To show love to the people, even the ones that we truly care for, like our family and our closest friends. But somehow we find a way to excuse our harsh words and our selfish behaviors. And somehow we don't invest in relationship. We don't work hard to love as much as we ought to. We seem to like spending our energy on things that are less important, like our work. I mean, it's important to work, but we seem to spend all our energies to, to work on our tasks and our activities and our pleasures. And then we only leave the dregs, right, the leftovers, to build a relationship. 
You know, sometimes I see it in myself, right? I'm, I'm preparing a sermon, and I use all my energy here, but then later on I get cranky at, at Faith and the kids. It's like, doesn't make sense. Or I spend all my time playing golf or computer games or going shopping or whatever it is that we do, and then we come, we're so tired and we're cranky at the people around us. And we don't actually build relationships or, or solve conflicts that are in our midst. Why do our relationships get the dregs when it is the single most important thing in life? Especially if you call yourself a believer and you know that a believer, true faith, is expressed primarily by love for God, seen in our love for others. Then my question for me and for you is why do we not invest more in loving the people around us and expanding our opportunities to love others, even strangers, even enemies? Even within the church. Sometimes when we preach about love or we do a Bible study, there's the word genuine love in it. Some people are so grieved uh, in being convicted that they don't love people genuinely and there's even tears. But you know, I've seen that people who say that they are upset about how they failed and they even cry about the grief that they feel do not actually put in the effort to then resolve the conflict to then forgive or seek forgiveness, to, to reconcile. Our words and even our tears are not enough. That we have to be the people who go all the way in wanting to love and show mercy and compassion to reconcile. God's word today is so clear, isn't it? As it always is, that if we are true believers, aspire towards that kind of love that is radical. Now, the second thing in terms of application is to dig a little bit deeper and to see a bit more specifically that this passage teaches us that love for others is without distinction. Right, the first point is that true believers uh, express that true belief in our love for others. The second is that this true love that we have is without distinction. We are not to limit our love to a select few or to a defined group. Right, neighborly love isn't just for those who have a racial bond or a, a common nationality, or color, or gender, or proximity, or socioeconomic status, or even because we live in the same block or in the same neighborhood. It is not limited to any of those things. We are neighbor to all, without our human-derived distinctions and limitations. But we all know that we are all born with, and we are nurtured to have some kind of in and out group, isn't there? Racism seems pretty inherent to all of us. Would it be fair for me to say that all of us here are at least a little bit racist? Maybe even a lot racist. And part of it is nurture, but part of it is a choice that we make, isn't it? In big and small ways, we choose to define and segregate and, and we limit who we will show love and care to. I was uh, meeting out with a good friend during the week, uh, an old friend, and he was talking, telling us a bit about his uh, family life. Uh, his parents came from Hong Kong as migrants maybe about 45 years ago. Uh, and all the way from when he was born, even now, and he's in his mid-30s, his parents insist that he speaks Cantonese at home. Right? Not allowed to speak English to the parents or to his siblings. Because one of the big reasons is that the parents find it too difficult to speak in English. It's too tiring. Uh, because what happened is 45 years ago, they came to Australia. They set up a business. They only employed Hong Kong people to be in their business place, and then they only go yam cha for when they go out to eat, only speak to Cantonese people, they only go to the Chinese grocery store, 
and buy. So they only buy soy milk, never fresh milk. Just kidding. Uh, I'm not sure they did that. But only Cantonese people around them, right? That is the definition of comfort zone, as I've ever heard. I was like, wow, that's amazing, right? That's comfort zone defined. If I see comfort zone in the dictionary, I will see this friend's family, right? Only Cantonese speaking in Australia. Now, there's no doubt we are more comfortable with our own kind. Right? Let's just admit that. <clears throat> Nothing wrong that we have this common bond. And maybe our comfort zones aren't as extreme as my friend's family. But, you know, being in Christ, knowing the kind of God that we have, that loves us, that made us, that saved us, knowing the love that he has poured out on all people without distinction and limitation, to know that he didn't just stay in some kind of comfort zone, just say with the Jews, the people that he first called out to belong to him. Can you imagine if he just stayed there and said, nobody else will receive my love but the Jews? Can you imagine that only the Singaporeans get loved, God forbid? Can you imagine if, if only the Canadians or the, the Americans or the Romanians, and what about everyone else? But God is not like that. For God sent his son to die for the sins of the entire world. And the picture that he gives us in Revelation or that final picture of our eternal kingdom, eternal life, is of a group of people from every nation, every tribe, and every language. And this is the kind of love that he shows us and the love that he calls for us to have as true believers, a love that is without distinction and without limit. And so I ask us, as internationals, most of us, if you're an international student, what is your comfort zone? I know some of you only ever stick around with international students. Those Aussies in our classrooms, they are so weird. I can't understand what they're saying. I don't understand their interests. How do I even have a conversation? And so you just like, SSS only, right? MSA, right? SLE, right? Or maybe you're a migrant and you have a migrant community and you just do migrant things. And even for you who are Australian and local, Australia is becoming increasingly more nationalistic again. So I'm always wanting to go back to the white Australia policy days of the 1800s, right? Close our borders. No to the refugees. It's copy, copying America and other places where we are becoming more and more insular and comfort zone people. But gospel people are not like that. We have an open border policy when it comes to love. A love without distinction and without limitation. Now, drilling even deeper, right, one last one. Even more specific to this passage, we are taught to show mercy to those in need, right? That's how Jesus ends, go and show mercy. An unusual, practical, and sacrificial love, just like the Samaritan. Now, the most straightforward application, obviously, from this passage is to be able to notice the physical and maybe even emotional needs of the people around us, even strangers, and to find ways to practically and sacrificially help. Now, I know that needs to be wisdom and figure out how to do that properly, because if you were to give two denarii's wage, uh, uh, worth of wages every day to people who are in need, then you'll be in debt by a year's wage after a year, right? Do you make that sense? Right? Two denarii's, uh, two days' wages every day, you'll be poor, you'll be broke, and you'll be in debt. So obviously, there's a wisdom to that. But look, let's be honest. If we are on the spectrum of being overly compassionate, overly helpful, and overly sacrificial, we are here. Or maybe in the middle. Some of you are very nice, right? But most of us are here. And the message from God's word today is 
Where's your compassion for those who are in need? How much more are you willing to be practical in your help? And how much are you willing to be sacrificial? Now, that's one way of applying this. And definitely we have to think about that. But in light of the gospel, in light of the good news of Jesus, in light of the coming judgment, there's another way that we ought to be striving for mercy. For the greatest mercy that people need is the mercy that comes from God. The mercy of being, of, of, that is received when people come to know and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so even though this passage doesn't explicitly tell us about evangelism, one very practical output of this is that we show mercy, I think, most when we show compassion for those who are lost in sin. When we, change, when we out of compassion, actually practically try and reach out to people to make the sacrifice that requires money, that requires time, that requires energy. And would you be willing to do that? To not get your high sevens. No, you, you're not, it's given that you aim for sevens, you're aiming for a high seven. Come on, let's be honest. Right? Or you're aiming for a six, and hopefully a seven. Will you be willing to give out a bit of the time studying to, to show mercy to those who are lost around you? Would you be willing to spend a bit less on bubble tea, on computer games, on travel? Man, travel takes up so much of our money. I'm doing quite a bit of traveling this year, and I'll explain to you why, but man, the money that's leaving my bank account because of all this flying and accommodation, this is crazy. And I hope it won't be another 10 years before I travel anywhere again because travel takes money. We'll be willing to give out some of those things to invest in bringing mercy to people. We'll be willing to be sacrificial. See, true faith is always expressed in love for neighbor that is without distinction or limitation. True faith is expressed in love that shows mercy and brings mercy to the people around us. Now, let me pray for us. This is a challenging message uh, that we need God's help to help us to live out. Let's pray. Our gracious, loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that your love for us is without limit and without distinction. That by sending your Son into this world to die on a cross for the sins of every person you show us that your love is for everyone. And you therefore tell us that we who are truly your children, that we who have faith that is true, would live a life that is modeled after the kind of love that you have shown us in Jesus. We thank you for the great challenges, maybe even the rebuke, and the great encouragement that this passage brings us. That this passage, which is a nice story about a Samaritan man, really has been elevated to helping us to examine whether we have true faith, that whether we are truly your covenant people who, who live out your covenant qualities, your very own qualities of love. Help us to see that when we say we love you, we show that by the way that we love others. And we thank you that this parable, this simple story, shows us that love is to be without distinction and limit, and love is to be driven from compassion that results in practical love and sacrificial service. You know where we struggle. You know where we are weak. But we pray you help us to aspire and to even achieve the kind of love that your people ought to be known for. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.